anyone tell you what you can't do. You're the captain of your soul, the master of your fate. This is Tall Hungry Girl Talks, a podcast about feeding your growth. Follow along at tallhungrygirl.com. Welcome to another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Michael Skinner, an Oregon native, I might add, and also an Eastlick Distinguished Professor and Founding Director of the Center for Reproductive Biology of the School of Biological Sciences at Washington State University. His research focuses on epigenetics and transgenerational inheritance of disease phenotypes. His research has been highlighted in BBC, PBS, and Smithsonian documentaries and selected as one of the top 100 discoveries in 2005 and 2007 by Discover. Welcome, Dr. Skinner. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation. And although you are at Wazoo, I still (laughs) claim you as an Oregon native. (laughs) It's pretty close. Yes, very close. And in the Pac-12 and going to the University of Oregon. So, you know, you're you're part of the Pac-12 family, so I appreciate that. Um, So let's dive right in. So for those who don't know or haven't heard it, what is epigenetics and what are the four main factors of epigenetics? Okay, so we started out over 120 years ago uh, when Mendel's genetics was rediscovered, and that really started in the early 1900s, the concept of genetics. And then in the, in the mid sort of 1900s, in the 50s or so, they determined the structure, and then in the 60s, they really started getting sequence. So for that entire, entire 120 years, we've been taught and everybody's taken a a course if they've done any science in genetics okay so genetics has really been the determinant and uh, the driver for all biological sciences and uh, it became it has become a significant dogma it's called genetic determinism essentially that genetics the sequence of the dna drives everything from what diseases you're going to get your phenotypes, your traits, every, everything, okay? So um, what we study is the opposite of genetics. It's, or it's a con- contributing factor, but it's called epigenetics, okay? And I'll explain to you why that's so critical. So epigenetics is described or defined as molecular factors and processes that are around the DNA it can regulate what genes get turned on and off. And so it regulates the genes or genetics uh, directly, but it does it completely independent of sequence. Because it's independent of sequence, it is distinct from genetics and doesn't follow any normal Mendelian genetic rules. Okay? And it turns out that this, that it, it, what, what's been found in the past 20, 30 years is essentially epigenetics is what controls the genetics. These two things are directly linked. The genetics by itself really can't do a whole lot. And the epigenetics evolved with the genetics to actually regulate this. So the way the environment actually impacts biology is through epigenetics that then impacts the genetics to then change what genes are turned on and off and shift the biology of the organism. Now, epigenetics includes things like 
what's one of the first things that were identified, DNA methylation. And so this is where a small methyl group, a little chemical group, gets chemically attached to the DNA. And when that happens, it actually can turn genes on and off. Okay, so the DNA methylation is the first. And there's methyl, enz methyl transferase enzymes that actually put that methyl group on the DNA. Uh, the next thing that was found is we know that there's these proteins and they're called histones. And so what it is is about eight of these histones come together and make a big sphere of protein. And the DNA gets wrapped around these histone proteins just like beads on a string. Okay, literally beads on a string sort of thing. And so this core with the histones called a nucleosome. And so DNA is never like this naked strand. It's always wrapped around these, these histones sort of cores making nucleosomes. And that's what the structure of DNA actually is. And these proteins that are the histones, they can be chemically modified as well. And that can turn genes on or off, independent of the sequence. Okay. And then structure, whether the DNA is coiled and looped and, and, and really tightly coiled and things like that, can also change what genes get turned on and off independent of sequence, so the structure of the DNA. And then the final thing that we know the most part is, is the non-coding RNA. So this is not an RNA that's generated to make a protein. These are usually smaller pieces of RNA that generate, and they can bind to proteins and bind to DNA and so forth to help organize things on the DNA to help facilitate them. They can also act at a really big distance so they don't have to be near near where, where they are ge uh, generated. They can act at a, a long distance. And so they, and just to clarify, uh, there's about 25,000 genes in the genome that have all these sort of activities we know of. There's 250,000 different non-coding RNAs. And so sheer number-wise, the epigenetics is a major sort of component of the genome. And it's not that epigenetics is going to replace genetics. What it is is these two things work together. The, the genetics is a smaller piece of a much bigger story, and the rest of the big story is really these epigenetics working with the genetics. And so they really can't be pulled apart because without the DNA sequence, epigenetics would be useless. And so, and basically without... The DNA, same sort of thing. Basically, these things work together, okay? So that's what epigenetics is. Those are some of the factors involved, and they have a significant role in regulating the genome activity and subsequently biology. Okay, very interesting. So part, it's great baseline knowledge for people that, you know, weren't aware of what epigenetics is or were um, aware. One of the reasons why I was really interested in interviewing you is because my dad is a Vietnam veteran. And I was interested in knowing on a personal level before I even contacted you about how his experience in Vietnam has impacted me. Um, and you know, from what I understand, he went through one of the worst battles of the war his unit was hit by a mortar and several soldiers in his unit died and he was nearly killed. So obviously a lot of trauma, PTSD after, after the war, uh, but he was also exposed to Agent Orange and subsequently got prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. So growing up, my siblings and I always felt like we were carrying some of this trauma that manifested itself through anxiety and depression. Um, how does man, how does trauma manifest itself in generations to come? 
especially so, in cases of war. Right. So, the, absolutely, it's trauma and stress, lots of different types, actually is a major environmental factor, just like the chemicals, like the, the Agent Orange, the dioxin that was in the Agent Orange, which is the, really the bad part of that Agent Orange, the dioxin, is essentially a chemical that's a toxicant. It can do the same thing. There's lots of even nutrition in terms of your nutrition can actually change the epigenetics as well. So it responds to lots of different environmental sort of factors. So what we found 20 years ago, what everybody got excited about and we were actually very surprised about, the way we thought about inheritance, so your parents got together, basically there was a, a reproduction go event and then essentially there was a fertilization event. And the sperm and the egg was carrying this, this genetic sort of material. They would come together and make a zygote, which is then allowed to then turn into an embryo and they sort of develop. So the only way we've thought about inheritance for the past uh, couple centuries is called genetic inheritance, where basically it's the DNA sequence that you're inheriting from your parents, okay? What we identified 20 years ago was a phenomenon called epigenetic inheritance, which is very different. And essentially it's independent of the DNA sequence. But it turns out what I just talked to you about epigenetics is the sperm and the egg also has epigenetics and it's determined during development. And so essentially an environmental factor like stress or chemical toxicants or whatever can go in early in, in development and change that germline, the egg or the sperm epigenetics, and it can become programmed permanently, such that when there's then reproduction later in life and, you, and there's an offspring from that, then essentially it can have that epigenetics carried through the germline to the embryo to that your basically offspring. And it turns out Essentially, this can become permanently programmed such that it's not just in the next generation, it'll keep going to the grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so forth going out. And some organisms like plants and worms and flies, this phenomenon has been shown to go out hundreds of generations. Okay, And so essentially that's called epigenetic transgenerational inheritance. Okay, So when your father was exposed to stress, or the chemicals like dioxin and Agent Orange, when he was probably a you know late teenager or in his early 20s, essentially it, that could actually impact his sperm. And so it was reprogramming the developmental sort of patterning of his sperm. And so, and then it was got into the stem cells for the sperm and it, in his testis and essentially they, they were, were permanent. So then all the sperm that he generated for the rest of his life has this epigenetic change. So in terms of an offspring then, if he was, the trauma altered this epigenetics, then changed this sort of, made it sort of an abnormal epigenetics, this is being passed to the offspring, then as the offspring grows and becomes an adult, they have this same sort of epigenetic traits. And essentially what happens is, if the sperm or egg has the altered epigenetics, so that when they come together at fertilization, there's a shift in the zygote epigenetics. The embryonic stem cells that develop now have a shifted epigenetics and a shifted transcriptome, gene expression pattern. All the cells in your body, 
all the somatic cells in your body, your brain, your kidney, every, all the cells come from those embryonic stem cells. And so essentially all the, all the cells that are generated in your body now have a shifted epigenetics and a shifted transcriptome, including your brain function, all, you know, your body, everything basically has the shift. So as you become an adult then, your brain's been altered accordingly. And essentially this can actually induce stress or trauma induced behavioral effects generationally okay so you you may have higher anxiety for example because of your parents or grandparents sort of exposures and it's being passed through this epigenetic transgenerational inheritance so it's a non-genetic form of inheritance that we found okay. and essentially it passes these types of traits mm -hmm. is there a way to turn this off so you're not passing it on um, uh, <laughs> the short answer is we haven't found a way to turn it off. Okay. We actually can diagnose it much more efficiently because now, and this is something we've done more recently, we can, we can take a number of different diseases that we get uh, and actually see, see that where it came from was a germline sort of process from a parent to diagnose that you have this epigenetic shift uh, that ca may cause the disease. For example, recently we showed that if we took sperm from fathers that have autistic children versus not, okay? So here's a bunch of fathers that don't have autistic children, here's a bunch of fathers that do. Essentially, we wanted to see, in, in autism we know that the father has about a three to one ratio to pass autism to the offspring. And then the offspring are generally males, more commonly than females. So what we found in the sperm for the fathers with the autistic children was an epigenetic signature that was, that was very reproducible and it was all the fathers that had the, had the autistic children versus not. And so this is basically as a biomarker for a father's susceptibility potentially to pass autism to their children uh, through this epigenetic sort of mechanism. So for that, what we can do there is, that allows us to clinically manage the process better. The father can decide whether he wants to have a child or not, and if he does have a child, we, there can be early clinical sort of interventions in the, in the early offspring. You don't know that baby has autism yet, but for the first year or so, if you clinically manage it, you can reduce the severity of the autism significantly. Well, we can do this with a series of different diseases that we have markers for. And so essentially, if we knew this in early in your life, let's say in your 20s, you could get an epigenome map and it would tell you you're susceptible for this disease, this disease, or this disease, and some of it could be trauma and so forth, anxiety. Because of that, we can clinically manage that potentially. And, and, and what we do in midlife, for example, there's a bunch of things that are therapeutics that if you take those therapeutics prior to the onset of the disease, maybe in your 30s or 40s, for a short period of time, you can delay the onset of the disease by 10, 20, 30 years. And so this is called preventative medicine. We can't do it right now very efficiently because we don't have diagnostics that allow us to do that. The genetic sequence sort of things you get from 23andMe are simply not a high enough frequency event to actually make you make a good conclusion that you are going to get the disease. The epigenetics is a high frequency event and it must be more efficient. 
at getting that sort of thing. So we won't be able necessarily to fix it, but we may be able to treat it in the future because of these advances. So going back to the, the autism, um, my younger brother actually has Asperger's. So it's, you know, it's interesting because he is male and yeah. So, um, so what type of exposures make offspring more susceptible? Unfortunately, uh, the actual, we know it's likely an environmental exposure because the genetic analysis really hasn't shown that there's a high frequency mutation that's associated with autism at all. It's a very low frequency event at best. And because there's this dramatic increase in autism over tenfold over the past 20 years, you really can't say that that's genetics because genetics can't change that quickly to actually give you that tenfold increase. It has to be an environmentally induced sort of thing. So we know it's an environmentally induced thing, but we never really had an ability to figure out what the factors might be. These biomarkers we have gives us the ability to potentially now go back and set up trials and so forth to assess what people are exposed to or not that may generate these types of signatures so we can actually work our way back to potentially identify those factors involved. But at this stage, we don't really know. Mm -hmm. Because in the, the research paper that I read that you've done, the autism summary paper, it said that autism has increased tenfold over the past several years right. and yeah. appears, as you mentioned, to be predominantly associated with paternal transmission. Um, and I think at the same time, you've seen pollution in the world increase too. So I'm not a scientist, but <laughs> seems like maybe there's a connection there. Right, and we've, we've studied about, uh, I think it's 16 or 17 different environmental toxicants. And so we've looked at individually. And so we've looked at plastics, things like dioxin that was in the Agent Orange, several different herbicides like glyphosate and atrazine. So we've looked at a whole series of things. The vast majority of these do promote this transgenerational inheritance. It modifies the germline epigenetics and you can pass things, and this is in a rodent model, passes things out four or five generations basically. Okay, so this, so the environmental toxicants or pollution can also do this thing. The other thing that can do it is diet. High-fat diets or caloric restriction will both induce this phenomenon as well and promote increased disease onset. Uh, so essentially, yes, it's not just sort of uh, a trauma sort of thing or something. It's also pretty much everything in our society and world has the ability to actually impact this. And because we haven't really known this before, we were really weren't be very careful. So there's a whole series of things over the past 50 years we've done that probably has been not necessarily the best thing for society. Yeah. Um, and to, you know, I interviewed a toxicologist and the beauty industry isn't really regulated. And so a lot of women, um, more specifically because we wear makeup, um, are being exposed to a lot of chemicals. So when you look at the regulation of our country and I don't know if you can answer this question. How do we compare to other countries in terms of our disease susceptibility? Do, do Americans have higher rates of disease than other countries? Um, it depends on the disease. We, ha we do have high, slightly higher rates of cancer, uh, but other diseases we're lower on. 
And so it depends on, there is this thing called regional disease frequencies. And so in other words, most of the diseases are present everywhere, but certain regions will have higher rates of cancer and others will have higher rates of lung disease or heart cardiovascular and those types of things. It depends on the region you're at. It's not like there's a region that has none. Yeah. All regions are have disease. The United States, because of its populace and because we're a developed country, uh, we have a little bit more sort of contamination than, than an underdeveloped country, which doesn't really reach that point. And so we, we have to, you have to think about it in that sort of way. In terms of regulations, there's regulatory agencies in most developed countries. Um, and there's also WHO and things like that that, that assist worldwide. But all of the toxicology that's currently done only assesses direct exposure toxicity. And so essentially, it's the individuals being exposed yes. that they're worried about. So when they run tests on the safety of a compound, that's all they do. Oh, so it's, it's not how, yes, it's not how it's going to impact their child. So, so for example, glyphosate, which is the most commonly used herbicide in agriculture worldwide, is essentially, it's a relatively safe compound. For direct exposure, it doesn't really have a big effect. And so therefore, it's heavily used. Now, if they had known that if you'd gone out two or three generations later, and the disease is, is basically at the 80-90% range, which is what we've found in the rodent models, this shows what we call a generational toxicology. It's not the direct exposure, but it's affecting future generations. And because the compound's relatively safe, the toxicology of the direct exposure is really not causing a disease in the individual exposed or even their offspring. But it gets programmed in the germline such that then in the F2 or in the grandchildren or great-grandchildren, then you have this high level of disease that develops. So is that because it takes longer to change the germline? If I'm or why why is it that it's not impacting the person but so it, so think about this. So let's say you're a gestating female. You are the F0 generation. You're being directly exposed. Your fetus is also being directly exposed to whatever contaminants you're seeing. And the germline that's in that fetus is going to determine your grandchildren. Okay? So the that what we see in the, in the F0, F1, and to a degree in the F2, is basically due to direct exposure of the toxic agent. Okay, the programming of the germline takes a generation or two to actually get programmed, so it's in your grandchildren. Oh, okay. then it's in the, the germline, it's there in the beginning, but it's not causing effects in you and other than your germline. And so then it goes to the F two or three generation, and that's when this disease goes higher. Okay, so. I know that we put so much emphasis on when a woman is pregnant, we put a lot of emphasis on what she's eating and don't eat raw fish, don't eat this, don't eat this cheese. And, you know, I, while that, I know that that's important, should we be putting more emphasis on the amount of stress that the father is undergoing, you know, before they have children and stress that the mother is going through, should those also be considered? I mean, we talk in society generally about how stress isn't good, but I'm, I'm not sure that people are aware that it has the ability to impact you for generations to come. Sure. Stress is just as much of an environmental factor 
than the nutrition or the toxicants you're being exposed to. A number of different labs, probably 20 or 30 of them now, have shown with a variety of different species and a variety of different types of stress and so forth, the stress always promotes this generational sort of effect. Again, you may not see it in the initial generation, but subsequent generations, you actually see that. So you're changing your germline, sperm and egg, epigenetics because of that stress. So stress should be seen as an environmental sort of thing. So if you are a, a couple trying to have a child or thinking of having a child, essentially the germline for the sperm, it takes about 70 to 90 days, a little over 70 days to actually go from the stem cell of the sperm to the mature, mature sperm. Okay. And then basically before. So essentially what that means is at least two to three months before you actually conceive, both the mother and the father need to think seriously about what they're being exposed to. Try to reduce those exposures to, all, to whatever degree necessary. And then when you're, once the, the woman gets pregnant, the female gets pregnant, then during the entire sort of pregnancy sort of situation, you need to be very cautious about what your exposures are. And stress is just as much as toxicants important during that process. And so essentially the, the advice is you have to be very cautious when you're generating your offspring. However, if this was previously programmed because of your great grandparents, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. In other words, it's there. Yeah. But anything that you're going to do, yes, you can try to minimize it by sort of a, avoiding any of those environmental toxicants, try to avoid the stress, try to have a very balanced diet, that kind of sort of stuff okay. to, to maintain it. That's great information for all of my friends who are looking to get pregnant right now. Um, okay, so moving on, still the same topic about stress, but looking, on, looking at it on a grander scale. So when large populations of people are exposed to long-term stress or continued trauma um, like war or like, for instance, the Holocaust, or um, the transatlantic slave trade, when you just have these massive swaths of people. How does this impact future generations? Well, they've actually, fairly significantly, is, is the short answer. In other words, they've done studies in the Holocaust survivors now and shown that there's epigenetic modifications, that there's being tra transferred to multiple subsequent generations, through that stress and the nutrition caloric restriction that was during the Holocaust. Okay, so this this is something that's going to plague this population for generations to come. Okay, and it's the same thing following war or the slave trade or whatever you want to think about. You know, the, the basically the African American transport in, certain, in terms of it. Basically, when they initially came to America, that was just as much of a stress as anything else. And so, essentially. Those types of events will affect that entire population for generations to come. And so just like the pollution levels that we have in certain regions affect the entire region's populations for generations to come. And they've shown that with a number of different ways. The dioxins is a good example, the one that's in the Agent Orange. There's been a number of industrial accidents that basically have occurred, one in Italy and one in India and so forth. And what they've shown is within the region that was exposed, that general region has higher rates of disease and things that come from that generational sort of effect. Mm -hmm. 
Because you'll see that um, certain, you know, they, studies on certain populations have higher rates of particular diseases. And I'm wondering if that is why that happens. Right. Okay. And so, yeah. And so the way to think about this is because I'm a biologist, I think about it as the big picture. If you think about this on an evolutionary sense, essentially what what Darwin suggested was when you have this phenotypic variation in the population, when there's natural selection, environmental factors, it'll actually select out and have an adaptation of a subpopulation that can adapt to this environmental sort of stress, okay? And so that was Darwin. Lamarck, 50 years before, proposed that if the environment came along, you could actually change the phenotype and the individual exposed, and that would become heritable. So Lamarck, to a degree, was right, because that's the mechanism I've just talked about. And so essentially, what we're doing to human society is today, we aren't what we were 100 years ago or 200 years ago. We've evolved physiologically. We have higher disease rates and so forth because of these constant sort of environmental sort of stressors and, and effects. Mm -hmm. so it's the same with all animals. You know, any sort of organism is going through the same thing, but we have done this to ourselves. Now the question is, once we realize this is affecting our great-grandchildren, we need to step back and say, how, what's the importance of that, and should we really change what we're doing? Change yeah. So what, in order to, I don't want to say prevent this, but if you know that you come from a line where there's a lot of trauma, like in my family, I know that that my, you know, my, my dad was in war, his father died when he was 19. So, or if you know that your ancestors were in the Holocaust or something like that is a way to, I don't, to manage that trauma that was passed down to you. Do you recommend therapy? Like what, how do you, how do you recommend that people guide themselves through life so, with this knowledge? Yeah. So it's a difficult Good, good question, but it's a difficult one. First of all, I'm not a clinician. I'm a basic research scientist. <clears throat> so I don't want to overstep my bounds, but there is a reason that 25% of the women in the age of teenagers and 20, 30-year-olds today have, are on anti-anxiety drugs because there's this significant rise in the general population of anxiety. And so essentially... We have pharmaceuticals that can help that situation, and that's why they exist and are sold. And so what we hope to do maybe is have better diagnostics, like epigenetic diagnostics and things like that, which will better hone in on you're susceptible for this, this, and this. And because of that, here's some therapeutics you could take. And if you take them early in life at the right time, you could actually delay the more severe conditions that might develop later in life. And so that preventative sort of medicine can actually be able to put in place once we have those types of diagnostics. And that doesn't just go with stress. It can go with cardiovascular. It can go with brain degeneration, lots of things. We might have these early life sort of markers for so that we develop therapeutics that don't necessarily deal with the trying to get rid of the disease after it develops is what we try to do today. We actually do it to try to prevent the disease from developing in the first place. Most of these pharmaceuticals that are used for that purpose are much more efficient than the trying to get rid of it after the disease develops. Mm -hmm. So I think this will shift how we do medicine, and that, will, in an essence, 
will hopefully shift things to a better medicine in terms of being able to treat it, but it'll also make people aware that we need to get rid of some of this environmental sort of stuff that we've been putting in and, and maybe fix it, not only for, not just for us, but the generations. Yeah. So how do you think the global pandemic will impact future generations when we're collectively experiencing massive global trauma? Sure. Um, it's a good question. I think, and it's kind of funny, but to a degree, I think a large portion of the, of the population is in a lower stress situation because they're at home with their families and so forth. So definitely the children are. And so essentially it is a stressful situation that we're in. We can't do the things we would like to do. But um, I think there is probably a little bit lower stress in some of the environments that have been put in place. The problem is, it turns out that infectious disease, like a viral infection, it can, is all, almost like an environmental stressor and actually can promote epigenetic changes in the body as well. So we, we do not, and we, there have been several studies published recently that have shown that uh, uh, infectious disease can promote a generational impact. Okay, not so much COVID yet, but they have shown it with other sort of systems with viruses and things, as well as sort of a number of different parasitic organisms and things like that. So it is possible that COVID in the early life exposures essentially will uh, change that epigenetics and not only will it affect us later in life, but maybe we'll pass it on to our generation. So that's a big question mark at this point, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case based on the literature that's published. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, obviously knowledge is power and I, you know, this information is just, is helpful to me because I think it explains some of my personality and I think it'll probably do that for other people as well um, when they are, you know, able to trace their lineage and learn more about uh, those who came before them. Um, so we've, we've talked about, you know, kind of the, <laughs> the issues of, of, you know, problems and stuff. What is the upside to, to all of this? And in one of the talks you gave at the end, you, you know, concluded with, okay, there is an upside. What is it? <laughs> no, it, is, it is very doom and gloom what I've just told you is what your grandparents were exposed to potentially is going to cause you to get disease and you're going to pass it to your grandkids and you may not be able to do much about it. So that's a pretty doom and gloom situation. Now, if you put that in the context of the current medical situation or medical community and the approaches we're using, the upside is knowing this is, exists, we can develop those things like the disease biomarkers. We can develop those things like the exposure biomarkers. In other words, we actually can tell you what your grandparents maybe were exposed to because of the epigenetics you have, that kind of thing. So that knowledge, that basic sort of understanding, then allows us to step in and say, well, what can we do to basically treat this situation? So this is where, believe it or not, it's gonna take this sort of situation to allow preventative medicine to be put in place. And when preventative medicine is effective, I think it's going to be orders of magnitude more effective than the current reactionary medicine. Instead of waiting till you get the disease to try to do something, to then try to get rid of the disease, we do it in your 30s. And for example, one good example that's fairly has pretty good literature on it, 
for breast cancer, one of the one of the initial sort of uh, therapeutics or chemotherapies developed. It's called tamoxifen. Okay, tamoxifen was used to try to treat breast cancer. It wasn't really effective, and so they came up with much better ones. But it was it's there. Now we actually know that if you actually take tamoxifen and you're susceptible to get breast cancer, take it in your 30s for a couple of years, two or three years, essentially it can delay the onset of the tumor by 10, 20 years or preventively prevent it. Oh, wow. You don't, you don't get the disease. Therefore, it's truly a preventative treatment. The problem today, though, is we don't know who to give the tamoxifen to because there's no diagnostics to tell us that you unequivocally have a chance of getting breast cancer. Every gene. Is it the BRCA gene that it, so that doesn't. Gene, but that's a low, yeah, their BRCA gene is one of the genes that it's associated with breast cancer. But you have to understand in a situation where there's a hundred patients of breast cancer, one, maybe two have the BRCA mutation. Okay. Vast majority. Uh, most of these genetic mutations are a very low frequency event. And so you can't really make the general conclusion that you are or not are not going to get breast cancer because you have a certain mutation. With epigenetics, what we find is 90% of the individuals will generally have the epigenetic signature we're looking at. Okay, so it's a much higher frequency event. And so the genetics was thought that it would do that for preventative medicine, but it's just not gotten there. Epigenetics will actually potentially give us that, and our data. And a series of studies have shown that it's in the, it's a high frequency event, so it has that potential. So the upside is this preventative medicine approach will be put in place because of these issues that we're, we're finding on the epigenetics. And with that, we're going to have better clinical management of disease and treatments that we, than we've ever had in history. Okay, So just knowing it exists we, allows us to then go step in and potentially do some treatments that we couldn't do before. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So what is next for you and your research? You have done so much fascinating work and read a bunch of the stuff on your website and the press that's been done on you. Um, you've had a lot of coverage in recent months. So your website indicates that the large worldwide epidemiology studies have suggested over 85% of the human population has chronic disease, which um, increase in number as we age. Is the is your center developing a solution to address this? Well, the um, epigenetics and the preventative medicine approach will address that high disease potentially onset. If we can actually prevent the disease from developing in any, and then we should hopefully drive it down. And the comment was that essentially, yes, worldwide about 85% of the population has at least one or more chronic disease, even between the ages of zero to nine, the majority oh, wow. have, have disease. <laughs> so we've, we've put ourselves in a situation because of the last hundred years, basically, of industrialization that we, and it wasn't like anybody could have predicted this, but now because of all this environmental sort of stuff, uh, we now are gonna be paying for it. With this preventative medicine, we might be able to actually treat it. Now, in, our, in terms of our next steps, we have a series of other diseases we're looking at, uh, which were an environmental sort of uh, epigenetic sort of marker would be quite useful. Things like uh, uh, arthritis and premature birth and so forth. So we're actually working in those areas right now. But our primary activity is really to try to better understand this mechanism of how the germline epigenetic changes occur, how they get transferred, 
and then how, how they lead to disease later on. So the basic molecular mechanisms, how this works, because that basic information will allow us to d figure out ways to actually treat this and fix this. Because mm -hmm. right now, do you know how long this will impact the generations to come? Well, we're doing studies in mammals because mammals are difficult. So we're using a rat model and we're out probably, uh, you know, we're pushing, we're pushing 15 generations at this point. And so we're now doing the, how do things change over these large number of generations? And so that's something that we have an ongoing project right now uh, to go forward. But we know in plants, worms and flies, it goes hundreds of generations, if not thousands. And so to think that it, that those are unique to those species and we're not going to have that's not a crap not accurate and so essentially it looks like when it's looked at carefully this is more of a permanent programming of the population and uh, it keeps going generationally now whether we can come up with in the future preventative treatments that would change the methylation in a positive manner or something it's hard to say it would and maybe 50 or 100 years from now they may be able to fix these sort of things because of new technology that's all possible. But the main thing for me is it's really just showing that it exists. This is how it works. And then here's some basically therapeutic sort of approach or uh, biomarker sort of approaches for therapeutics that we could actually consider putting in place. Got it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything left that you wanted to discuss before we close out the podcast? No. I also want, no? Covered no, everything? Covered everything. <laughs> I would just... For the, your listeners, basically, um, this is a different way to think about things. Environmental epigenetics is not your classic genetics. And so you shouldn't see them as opposing at all. They actually work together. And so we should add these together to give us more knowledge rather than see it as op opposing things. And there are people that actually are geneticists that get very defensive about this, but we really should pull it together to take the next step forward. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. You can learn more about the work Dr. Skinner is doing at skinner.wsu.edu. Um, thank you so much for joining another episode of Tall Hungry Girl Talks. If you want to learn more, follow along at tallhungrygirl.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts.